Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet... Here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. A quarter century ago, I was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. For more than 15 years, I've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer and now stupid healthcare. And I'm just getting warmed up. So let's all go make healthcare suck less together because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Out of Patience on the show. Today, I speak with Mel Mann, the longest living human being who participated in the first clinical trial for the drug Gleevec. No, this episode is not brought to you by Gleevec or its manufacturer, but it does represent a seminal moment in the annals of cancer survivorship. When Mel Mann was diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia at the age of 37 in 1995, he was told he had three years to live. But he's somehow here 26 years later and going strong, and I really mean going strong. He served as a major in the U.S. Army and kickstarted this incredible bone marrow drive across the country. He started running marathons to raise money for cancer research, and then he went back to school to become an English teacher. And now he serves as a national cancer advocate and patient activist. So here he is to talk about his epic journey, ladies and gentlemen, Mel Mann. Mel Mann, my God, how long has it been? This has been like a ships in the night karmic reunion of people who've known each other for a long time now. Uh, Yes, it has. It has. And it's been a minute. Well, welcome. And all it took was Baltimore to bring us together. That's right. That's right. So for the listeners, Mel and I have known of each other since, you know, we kind of entered the patient advocate space, largely against our will. I think that's a fair way to put it. And we happened to be at a conference in Baltimore at the same time this year for the first time ever. And all things epic ensued. Yes. Yes, that's right. Did you enjoy your being there? Oh, yes, I did. It was good to uh, get out and travel for a spell. and see everybody. Was that your first conference out and about? That was my first one out and about. And was that your last one out and about? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it would come close a few times, but those have been like uh, canceled. So I think where we can find the most incredible and highly unique common ground is that we are the longest living survivors of our respective cancers in the country. Uh, yes. And uh, we both were diagnosed in 95. Yeah. And we're also like, we call it Clinton cancer. If you remember, like, what life was like in the 90s. Yes. It's a very niche, small little band. Yes. I think where I'd like to start, though, is to go back in our time machines and remind the listeners of today. You know, we remember a time when, I, my God, I was 21, you're in your 40s. Like, 
what was life really like in the 90s when you got cancer? It's like we're a history book. Uh, actually, I was 37 and uh, it was 1995. I aged you. Sorry, you were 37. <laughs> yes, I was a young adult. I was diagnosed in January 1995. So um, I'm getting ready to go on to the, my 27th year. Back then, very few people had computers, their own personal computers. So you know, life was a, a lot different. And we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now, you know, have this conversation on a podcast. No, I often tell the story of how I found out that I had cancer after an MRI. And my mom and I went to the diner after the scan and we got back to the house and ready for this, the answering machine was blinking. Wow. And that's funny you mentioned MRI because that's the same way I found out. My back was hurting. The technician kept telling me to lay still. I was like, I wouldn't be here if I could lay still. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, give me a break, doc. Seriously. <laughs> so you were diagnosed with chronic myeloid leukemia and it's fun, like funny, not funny to say it this way, but it doesn't sound like cancer, does it? I know. In fact, uh, the name changed, too, over the years. When I was diagnosed, it was called chronic myelogenous leukemia, and that was quite a mouthful. So uh, I just kept saying CML. It's a rare disease. I had not heard of leukemia too much before that, so everything was new for me. Did they have to tell you, by the way, leukemia means cancer? Uh, well, I could tell by the doctor's face that it meant cancer, but I thought it was just for like kids. And I, I didn't know that adults were struck by leukemia also. Right. And the words young adult cancer didn't exist back then. They weren't really kind of started till like 2004 and five. But did you feel like you were treated like a 37 year old and not a seven or a 70 year old at the time? I felt kind of old, though, because. Uh, when you get a diagnosis like that, they said it was terminal. They said I had three years to live. That kind of makes you come face to face with your mortality. Yeah. Another thing we have in common is, sorry, you have six months to live and you're not 80. <laughs> Good luck with that. Right. right. Now, you were currently serving or you had just left your service when you were diagnosed? I was in the military as a major. I was stationed up in Michigan, up around Detroit at a place called the Tank Automotive Command. I was up there with my wife and my five-year-old daughter. And uh, that's when I found out. Was there any conclusive, I don't think they did this back then, was like any ideas of like, or conspiracy theories of how you got blood cancer in the army? Uh, well, you know, there's a lot of like theories. Hey, uh, you know, you were stationed here at this base and they had these uh, landfills or it might've been this ammunition, but there was nothing conclusive uh, you know, up in Michigan, there were a lot of people that were diagnosed and them say, well, it might have been this, it might have been the environment, but we don't know what causes leukemia. Right. So nothing like being told you have three years to live with a five-year-old daughter. What was that like? When they told me three years to live, I, I counted, you know, five, six, seven, eight. You know, I was trying to get that math. That was, that was really difficult math at the time. It was just mind-blowing. It was, uh, I couldn't really keep a thought once they told me that. I always get plugged for the Cancer Mavericks documentary on all my interviews because it's such a historical past this prologue. The word cancer survivorship was invented in 1986 when they started the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, and they decided as policy that you are a cancer survivor from the day you're diagnosed, regardless of how long you may live. And that's been controversial. Was that at any point brought to your attention that, welcome, you're a survivor today with three years to live? <laughs> no, uh, I, 
I was a patient. Uh, it was not until recently that, that I learned that I was a survivor in that sense. But yeah, I, I was always a patient those first probably 10 years. Yeah, I asked the question because I never felt like a survivor and they never called me a survivor because they kept shoving down my throat. Come back in five years if you're alive. I'm like, oh, right. great. When I'm 28, I'll come back. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about navigating the 90s with what they think is terminal cancer. Did you have support groups? Did you have access to mental health services? All the things we have today kind of didn't exist. What was it like for you? Well, you know, I, I had a good support system with my people at work, my family, friends, um, church. I had a, a decent support system. And there are also groups like the Lakey Melophoma Society. And they're excellent with keeping uh, people informed with information and updated on research and, and things of that sort. Yeah, one of the strange benefits of having blood cancer at any point in the last 60 years is that LLS has kind of been there for people. There really wasn't sort of that level of institutional support, infrastructure research for many other cancers, maybe breast cancer. But I'm glad you found LLS in the 1990s, no less. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like you said, they have great support with the education, patient support groups, caregiver groups, clinical trials. Uh, I didn't find out about clinical trials until later, though. Even today, like, what the hell's a clinical trial? Like, nothing's really right. changed, has it, 30 years later? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. People are still asking, you, is that like the banana diet or you know, <laughs> what, what is that? <laughs> yeah, cannabis oil hadn't made his bullshit fad yet. We were way before our time. No cannabis right. oil to cure us, of course. Yeah. So you were able to meet other chronic myelogenists? Well, you know, uh, once uh, Gleevec came out, they changed the name because that was uh, kind of difficult uh, for folks to say. Uh, so they, they changed it to my Lord. I'm all for less syllables, right? That's right, right. I'll just say CML. Exactly. So you were told your only chance of surviving would be to find a bone marrow transplant somewhere. You know, yes. like, yeah, X marks the spot on this pirate map on this <laughs> island where the make a left where the old barn used to be. Right. That's where we're at right now. Hey, you're still here, but how'd that work out? Okay. So that, that was my mission. When I was diagnosed, the doctor said, hey, the only cure, possible cure, or a better chance for long-term survival would be to have a bone marrow transplant. You know, he said, hey, your best chance is a sibling. And he asked me how many siblings did I have. And I only had one. And uh, she turned out not to be a match. And there was nobody in my family that was a match. So I had to, and there was nobody on the registry. And uh, I really only had like a 1% chance of finding a match and I never found one, but I did a bunch of bone marrow drives. The army flew me around the country. I did them in churches, I did military bases, colleges, everywhere, and still could not find a match. So from 1995 to 2001, there was no Gleevec. And by the way, just for disclosure to the listeners, this show is not sponsored by Gleevec and the manufacturers, but it's a really critical character in Mel's story. Well, what happened was that one of my drives this guy came up to me. He said he had hairy cell leukemia, and he was close to death. And he went out to this medical center, and they turned his leukemia around, and he tried this clinical trial. And he recommended that I do the same thing. And so that's what I started doing. I started going out to that center, and I uh, started different drugs. And eventually, I got to the three-year mark, and I still was at the same place I started off with. And I asked the doctor, I, I said, 
you know, are there any more drugs? And he said, well, we got one more drug. It's close, but it's not ready yet. You know, we're still having problems in the lab. So his idea were close and my idea were close, but not the same. So I went back home. And they called me like eight months later and said, hey, you know, we, we got this drug that we can use in humans. It's it's approved by the FDA to use in humans. So I went back out there and, and they gave it a try and it worked. And that was in 1998. If they had told you it was approved to use in giraffes, would you still have done it? <laughs> uh, well, you know, actually, what they said was we're having problems in the animals. That's the problem. Oh, wait, that, that yeah. sounds fantastic. What a lure. Come on in. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, a pill. You know, a pill sounded easier to take than, you know, something that had all the other side effects. So you were on this medication before it was approved. Yeah, I was on it for about three years before it was approved. And how did it feel to think you were like, I hate to use the word guinea pig. That's the way we used to think of clinical trials. Was that your perception? No, I didn't feel like a guinea pig. I felt like uh, I was blessed because there was only so many people that could get on the trial, like 60. And it's like three sites and 20 people each. And I could see that it was working. So I would go back and tell other people that there's this drug because, you know, as the clinical trial progressed, more and more people could come on the trial. And they would kind of look at me like I was crazy. Well, I mean, we could do a whole of the show about the words clinical trial and the way they've been represented or misrepresented or misunderstood or there's been hesitations. And here we are like 25 years later, and it's still a conversation of what is this? How do we get people on it? What does it really mean to pay it forward when you hope it works? And the confusions over placebo, you know, you've been doing this a long time now. What do you see as the common threads or new issues or problems around trials today? The biggest issue for me was I live in Atlanta and I had to travel out to Houston for my clinical trial. And sometimes I had to stay out there for like three months. So the biggest issue is getting out there, having the time to be you know, away from your job, away from your family, the expenses. But I do see that it's changing, especially with all the technology that we have today, we can bring that clinical trial to the patient and that would make it easier, less expensive, and you would probably get more people to participate. Yeah, and for the listeners, that's a new thing called decentralized trials. Instead of you giving up your entire life for three months to go to another city, what you need to stay alive comes to you in your city, right? Yeah, that's right. And then you, know, you don't have to go back and forth because I had to go back and forth every two to three months. So that could get old. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back with Mel Mann. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. 
Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, we're back with Mel Mann, the oldest living survivor from Gleevec, which is a treatment for chronic myeloid leukemia. You were an English teacher. That's so cool. Yes. Right. And, and all this happened after I was on Gleevec. And I came back from the trial. I ran a marathon. I did a century. I uh, started uh, school and got my master's of education and certification. I taught high school English. Did you ever think you'd run a marathon? I ran one in high school, but I really didn't think I was going to run another one. But then uh, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, they said, hey, you know, uh, we would like for you to be a patient hero and somebody would run a marathon for you and raise money. I said, well, I'll do that myself because I had ran one before in high school. Did you at least ramp up to like do a 10K or you go deep into the pool, boom, 26 miles? It was into the pool. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That takes courage and chutzpah, as we say in, in Yiddish. My God. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it took something. So is it fair to say that the Gleevec product, again, not a sponsor for the show, it's really part of the story, gave you your life back? Or have you always been in like this anxiety trepidation, even 23 years later? You know, uh, initially, I didn't know how long Gleevec was going to work, you know, because I was the first, well, actually, I was the second person that at that site to try it. And the first person that did not respond to the drug. I knew it was a good medication, but I did not know if it's going to be five years, eight years, 10 years. And then there was a point where the people realized that, hey, this is good. You're going to live a normal lifespan. It was still hard to comprehend. There's a little apprehension. They say that patients or survivors, they live between their blood test and their diagnostic test. So every time that you know you have to go get your blood work, there's still like a little bit of what is it going to be, but uh, not as much as before. I can't help but think that your then five-year-old daughter is really thrilled that you're still here today. What's your family dynamic like these days? Oh, it's great. She was five at the time, and you know, we took her out to the bone marrow drive. She was always involved in in my treatment. You know, she went out to uh, Houston with me a lot of times, and she grew up in. She uh, she went to Harvard and she went to uh, medical school and she's a uh, board certified psychiatrist. So you're proud. I, I'm proud. Yeah, I'm proud. <laughs> <laughs> you done good, Dad. That's pretty amazing. Uh, thank you. That's thank good you. stuff. So let's talk about your activism because no one asks to get sick. You didn't wake up one day and say, "I can't wait to be a volunteer for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society," and here you are doing this all these years now. What are your key messages? Who do you talk to these days? Like, what's your new hill to die on? My advocacy is clinical trials, bone marrow 
donors. You know, I, I still going through that, even though I never found one, it still stays with me. So I'm, I'm still pretty active with Be The Match and, and searching for donors for, for others who may need them. A uh, big advocate of clinical trials. I call myself Exhibit A because it worked for me. So you can't deny that they work. And just patient information is critical. So like I said, no one asked to get sick, but you're thrust into what I call a kind of supply only economy. There's no real demand for chemotherapy. And it often puts people in this Charlie Brown teacher, wah, 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 we don't know what to do. And we're hoping to find advocates to guide us along the way. You know, when you're brand new in this store, you don't know what to shop for. You don't know who to listen to. Mel steps in. What's the first thing you tell them? Well, you know, I, I tell them to do their research and to be their own patient advocate and also to find out all the different options to keep their head up, find a good support system. And I always advise a second opinion. Then if they're a black cancer patient, I advise them to go to the Chemo Lymphoma Society. Or if they're some other type of patient, then they should go to the cancer organization that represents their cancer to get more information. I was going to lean in a little bit later into the fact that you are a man of color and you speak to diverse communities about very unique things of those communities. But I first wanted to ask you this. Not everyone's born with chutzpah. Not everyone has that moxie gene embedded in them, and and they need to learn how to be an advocate. Is it really that easy? Can you just say, be your own advocate? And what are the tools that you've helped educate people with to learn what that means if they don't have that instinctively? Everybody is not an advocate. So I recommend that when you go to the appointments to take somebody with you, because you you may not hear everything clearly, and to do your research and get with a good organization because they can do a lot of other stuff for you. Like you would be overwhelmed trying to do everything yourself. Some organizations uh, such as LLS, they have their own clinical trial center. So you just tell them, hey, I got this disease and uh, this is my insurance or my, I don't have insurance and whatever. And then they can research your options as far as clinical trials. So, you know, you just got to find the right people on your team. Right. And you have to hope you're lucky. Is it luck? Is that the wrong word? Or is it really just opportunity? It's both. If I had been diagnosed a year earlier, I probably would not be here. So that was uh, a bit of luck. And the opportunity to get on the trial, you know, that was great. And, you know, that gentleman who came to the Bowman Drive, that was just uh Awesome. So it's, it's all those things coming together. But, you know, listen to other survivors like yourself and me and, uh, you know, just to get motivated. Because when I was diagnosed, I looked for other long-term survivors and there were none. Yeah. It took me seven years to find a peer. Seven years to find someone yes. who was also diagnosed in their 20s and wasn't 140 years old. Yes. I was 37 and uh, this was a illness that struck people mainly in their 60s and and above. So it was hard for me to find someone my own age also. So again, for the listeners, if you wanted to scroll Mel's LinkedIn, which we'll put a link in the description for, I meant it when I said he's in the deep end of the pool and he stayed in the deep end of the pool. You're not just volunteering for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. You are, in fact, doing work for Be The Match. 
the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which for the cheap seats in the back, that's the group that decides what our best practices and what doctors should be doing with specific cancer patients. You're working with the American Society of Clinical Oncology, Columbia University's Mailman School, Mailman, not Mailman, <laughs> School of Public Health. See what I did there? The That's Broad right. Institute, the Society for Integrative Oncology, uh, which is where we met in Baltimore for our talk this fall. Let's talk about the conversations you have in communities of color. That is clearly the largest gap we have to solve for in this country. The statistics are just unacceptable. And we need to do better to serve these communities. What's your role in that space? Well, my role initially started out when I was diagnosed because in 1995, there were like 2,000 African-Americans who needed bone marrow transplants. And only eight of them found a donor and the rest of them did not have a good outcome. So my initial mission was to educate folks on marrow donation and to get them to join the registry. And then... As time went along, my mission became to educate people about the different resources so that they could get these resources early, because the earlier they get these resources, then the sooner they can be aware of what they're, you know, they might have these symptoms that they don't know, which may be symptoms of leukemia or blood cancer. Like they might have bone pain or they might be tired or they might get sick a lot. They might try to tough through it, but if they knew that those were symptoms of blood cancer, then they would go to their primary care doctor who would take tests and probably send them on to the specialist. These symptoms, they do not mean that you have blood cancer. It just means that you might want to get in and get checked earlier. Right. And in our time left, you're going to solve all the world's problems by answering the following question. Ready? You're right. Okay. <laughs> so trial enrollment has been at an all-time low, given the fact that all these new tests and diagnostics, they're out there. Why, in your personal opinion, maybe your professional opinion, I'll let you choose, have we not seen a real legitimate increase in trial awareness and enrollment in the last 40 years? Well, there's a lot of uh, distrust in the system and um, distrust uh, among African-Americans. But the main reason that there has not been a lot of enrollment is a lot of people have not been asked to enroll. You just got to ask everybody. And if you ask everybody, the chances are that you would get a lot more people to consider being in a clinical trial. And finally, how on earth did you get so many Twitter followers? That's incredible, impressive. I think you have the most of any patient advocate I know. Uh, well, first, I put up a dance video. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I started out at first doing uh, stuff with bone marrow donation and recruiting bone marrow donors over the internet. And I was getting uh, quite a few. One season, I got like 400. So that was good because every 430 that you get, that's a match for somebody. So I started doing that. And I just don't know. I was just blessed that I hit the right segment. Most of my followers, maybe half of them are uh, medical related. But even still, you have, I'm looking right now as we're taping this, 532,000.8 followers. And you're on Twitter at Mel D, man, you are demand. I, that's a bad dad <laughs> joke. I can get away with it because it's you and me. Mel D, man at Twitter. Yeah. Mel, Mel initial D for Daryl, man. Mel D, man. 
All right. Mel Mann is the world's longest living Gleevec patient, 27 years after being given three years to live. My friend, that is fantastic. Retired U.S. Army, thank you for your service. A deacon, an English teacher, a patient advocate. What aren't you? Well, I can't say. I know. I can't say. <laughs> and, and best dad ever, apparently, too. Good for you, man. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for coming in out of patience. Way more to come in the future. And look at us. Hashtag still here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. <laughs>